there's a difference, it seems, between optimism and hope and the reality distortion field. Sometimes it gets out of hand, and sometimes we need to know enough and have the maturity to put it away and get back to work. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about the Cybertruck, but first, here's a message from our sponsor. Only 3% of donors give to charity based on how effective the charities are, but the best charities can be over 100 times more impactful. Many of us spend more time researching our next laptop than researching how to best save a life with our donation. If you want to find out the best ways to make your charitable donation go further, go to givingwhatwecan.org. I joined the Giving What We Can community over five years ago, and it was one of the best decisions I ever made. If you want to do the same, that website was givingwhatwecan.org. I got this question the other day about something that I had said about Tesla and their Cybertruck. Hi, Seth. My name's Tilak Duda, and I live in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I wanted to ask a question about something that I felt was a bit of a apparent contradiction in some of the things that you've talked about previously. The um, This is a, an opinion I think you shared in a recent podcast that you were asked to be a guest on. Um, it had to do with this Tesla Cybertruck design. And in the podcast, your opinion, I think, that you shared was that you felt that Tesla had made a big mistake with their design of the Tesla Cybertruck because it failed to uh, take into account what pickup truck owners wanted from a pickup truck. And uh, it was surprising to me to hear that opinion because to me, when I first heard about the Tesla Cybertruck, I think I even made a connection between the design, the crazy design, and the idea of the purple cow. Now, I contradict myself all the time, but this is not an example of me contradicting myself. So let's start at the beginning. For a very, very long time, Creators, musicians, artists, playwrights, authors, and business people needed to use optimism to get other people on their side. You cannot prove that your symphony is going to be a hit. You cannot prove that your book is going to be any good, not until it's done. You can't get funding for your business after you've made your business successful. You need the funding before you've made your business successful. So, how to make all those things work? Well, we spin, we hype, we hustle. We put ideas in front of the people who need to hear them, who are in the business of hearing them, and we predict a future that isn't here yet. But Steve Jobs took it way further, and he did it with the aid of technology because technology changes the system. Technology changes the game. And it became known as a reality distortion field. And so... Steve could walk into a room filled with people who knew what a DOS computer was and describe to them the magic of the Mac long before the Mac was a real thing. He could do the same thing with his keynote talks that were watched by millions of people around the world, where he would say, and just one more thing, and then describe something that wasn't real. And sometimes the things he described never happened. And other times when they did happen, they weren't nearly as good as he said they were going to be. But technology being what it is, Moore's Law being what it is, the technology caught up, that people were eager 
to get on the bandwagon because they wanted to see things get better. Well, amplify this by social media, and what we end up with is reality distortion field as a business model, as a way of getting elected when you have no plans, intent, or ability to do the things you say you're going to do when you're running. Or see how the reality distortion field is used by others in the tech space to describe things like, I don't know, self-driving cars that are not here yet, that aren't going to be here anytime soon, but that were not only promised, but sold for real money years and years ago. The reality distortion field lies directly next to trust. Because sometimes we want to believe that reality can be distorted and we're more likely to trust the leader that promises they will do their best. And other times when we discover that it never really was going to work, it starts to feel more like manipulation or a scam. And I think we're seeing the frustration of some people who have a Tesla because the fit and finish is so poor, because the customer service is so terrible, because the self-driving hasn't arrived because it's a little too much hype and not quite enough reality. So what's the difference between Musk and Jobs? Well, alas, Steve passed away and Tim Cook took over. And Tim Cook, when he took over, said, I'm going to stop distorting reality and I'm going to do two things instead. One, I'm going to make this the most valuable company in the history of the world over and over again, churning out profits. And two, I'm going to make sure that the world is rebuilt around this computer in a pocket. And he has done both of those things. That Apple's project is no longer to dance with technology to invent things that haven't been invented yet. Their project is to cross the chasm to get their phone, their luxury device, into as many pockets as they possibly can. And they have succeeded and they continue to succeed. Because crossing the chasm, as Jeff Moore has written about, getting to the other side, away from the early adopters, the innovators, the people who want the cutting edge, and getting to the people who want the thing that everyone wants, that is not easy to do. Netflix did it. At the beginning, Netflix was a service for people who didn't find what they were looking for at Blockbuster. Most people could walk into a blockbuster and say, yeah, there's enough movies here. I'm fine. But if you wanted a documentary about something that happened thousands of miles away, Netflix was your only choice. To get to the other side, Netflix has to broadcast things like Squid Games and reality shows and the British Baking Show and all the other stuff that the original Netflix subscriber might have snorted at. That the other side is filled with people who want the regular kind. And so we come to internet troll Elon Musk. Elon Musk likes living with the early adopters. It has made him very rich and powerful and famous. And he likes being famous and being talked about. So if you're listening, Elon, you're welcome. I'm talking about you. When it came time, after the Model S, after the Model 3, after the Model X, to launch the Cybertruck, he and his team had a choice. On one hand, they could have done what they've done before. Make a commotion, make a ruckus, get more attention, have controversy happen, make very big promises, collect deposits, and then see what happens. Or they could cross the chasm. The chasm 
means that the people who wanted something that's new are different than the people who want something that works. So in the United States, the number one best-selling vehicle is not a car. It is the Ford F-150 pickup truck. Some years, Ford makes enough money from that one vehicle to pay for the losses of all their other divisions. It had accounted for more than 100% of their profit in at least one year that I know of. The Ford 150 pickup truck works, and it works in two ways. One, it's a vehicle where parts are readily available and it does what you want it to, and two, it works because it's a vehicle that doesn't call attention to itself. If you look at the tradespeople driving around your town, you will see that they're either driving a Ford 150 pickup truck or a van, a panel truck, the normal kind that doesn't say, I've got money to burn, please look at me. It says, I've got a job to do, and this is how I'm going to get it done. When Ford launched their electric pickup truck, it was a sensation. They're already shipping it, and they have a waiting list of paid deposits that will last three years. The Ford F-150 pickup truck satisfies Ford's objectives, which are one, give people a reliable vehicle at a good price, and two, make the transition from internal combustion engines to electric cars that do what they're supposed to do. Musk could have done this first. He had a head start on Ford. He could have leapfrogged way ahead of the Ford Lightning and just captured the market. It depends on your goal. If your goal, which he has said is his goal, is to get everyone in, in America to drive an electric car, the right thing to do was to build a boring truck that would make the Ford F-150 obsolete because it would satisfy the objectives, the goals, the desires of the mass market. Or you could do a live launch event where you could foolishly throw a steel ball at the supposedly bulletproof windows of the truck and watch them break in front of everybody. Also, establishing a meme that lets potential buyers know that kids in their neighborhood might, I don't know, throw a rock at their window because that's what the owner of the company did and make big promises about when it was going to ship and not keep them, which you can do when you have a reality distortion field, which you can do when you're riding on the cutting edge of technology. But the Cybertruck isn't on the cutting edge of technology. We have the cutting edge of technology in electric cars. Lots of companies are on the cutting edge. What you need is to cross the chasm, to change the culture. And so the purpose of this rant is not to pick on Tesla. The purpose of this rant is to help each of us understand that sometimes what we need to do is dance as fast as we can for the early adopters, to be way out on the cutting edge where the air is thin, to be able to describe a possible future, to erect a reality distortion field, and then and then realize that sooner or later, we need to find Tim Cook. Sooner or later, if we really want to change the culture, we need to figure out how to find people who will make and keep boring promises. So if we think about music, yes, it's true. Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan decided to walk away from pop stardom to go back to tilling the fields of being interesting because they don't run corporations and they have the privilege and the freedom to do that. Their job was not to change music for Western culture. 
their job was to make the music that they had inside of them. But if you're going to go to the trouble of building a company, a public company, or if you're going to go to the trouble of saying to the world, I'm going to change the world, then I think you're on the hook. You're on the hook to figure out which part of the world you want to change and how do you stick with it and stick with it and stick with it in a way that matches what people think you promised them. Because on the other side of the chasm, it's a lot more boring. It is probably more boring to work at McDonald's than to work for, I don't know, David Chang and Momofuko or Christina Tosi and Milk Bar because they're in the ether. They're trying to come up with the next big thing. But if you're McDonald's, you're feeding one out of seven Americans every single day. It's a different job. We got to pick which job we're doing. And when you have the chance to change the culture, you might want to take it. Or you might want to take a deep breath and say, no, I'd rather go back to leading and innovating. But you can't pretend you're doing both at the same time because that almost never happens. So that's my rant. I hope you've been well. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with four great questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or anything previous, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. All four questions this week are about the practice and genre and how we look at ourselves when we look in the mirror. They all came in in a row. Here we go. Hey, Seth. This is Phil from Michigan's beautiful Upper Peninsula. So over the years, I've heard you talk about and read your writing about this idea of genre and how it provides a box for those you're trying to serve to put you in as a starting point and how it gives you an edge that you can leverage against. So I'm curious, how do you view this for yourself and your work? How You've been involved in many projects over the years and you don't necessarily fit it all into one genre. So does this idea on apply on a, a per-project basis? Like, is this project is aimed at this genre and this one over here is aimed at this other genre? Or is there this overarching genre that you view your work through? The reason I'm asking is 
that I think a lot of us are on that same trajectory of a career being a, a lining up of consecutive projects, not holding a series of job titles. And because I, and I'm sure I'm in no way unique here, often work across genres, which makes it hard to find those edges to push against. So anyway, I uh, appreciate your work. Thanks for generously sharing it with all of us. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Take care. Thanks for this one, Phil. When somebody in the world is considering a new project, whether it's a business-to-business sale, a job they're going to apply for, a book they're going to buy, or a flavor of ice cream, they begin by thinking about the genre. Because if it's too far outside of the genre, it's not worth them considering. If you're a vegetarian, you don't go to a steakhouse. It's just not even worth looking at the menu because it's outside of the genre you are looking for. Many of the projects that I have worked on, of the many hundreds there have been, that have failed, have failed because I ignored that simple rule. That coming up with something that is really clever, that breaks understandings of genre, almost certainly guarantees that it will fail. Kind of Blue, which I've talked about many times, Miles Davis, one of the best-selling jazz albums of all time. It's a work of genius, and it fits squarely into a genre. The monkeys are in a genre. Go down the list. When people in a culture embrace something, I'm not even talking about a massive bestseller, even a niche. It's because there's a genre. The second question they might ask is, why should I trust this? Who is this from? What's its source? In those moments, having earned the track record I have by showing up so many times is when my name comes in. So first it's the genre, and then it's brought to you by the person who did this, this, and that. And if you cross genres too far, the way, say, Billy Joel or Sting or Paul McCartney might if they make a classical music album, the fact that you're coming from a different field might not even help at all. It might hurt. But that's my short answer to your good question. Thank you. Hi, Seth. Um, I have a question about the difference between refining your craft and then becoming a storyteller. So I have a, uh, literally I have a friend who is a very, very good artist technically. Um, and he has mastered his craft, but he hasn't, in my opinion, taken the step from mastering the craft uh, and having all the skills to telling a story with those skills and engaging an audience um, to make a difference. Do you have any tips on making that leap? Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you for this one, Ross. It's a really great distinction. Turns out that craft, when we're talking about painting or photography, is the cost of entry, but it is woefully insufficient because over time, more and more people earn a craft. That doesn't make you stand out because you haven't added the emotional connection that comes from the art, the art of doing something that might not work, the art of making connection, the art, as you said, of making a story. And art always comes fraught with risk. Because if you're skillful, you can point to the fact that you can play with perfect pitch. You can point to the fact that you can represent whatever it is you're looking at as well as the camera can. 
craft is fine, but craft is safe. And if someone wants to go to the next level, call it not the next level, but to a different place, in order to do that, they have to sign up for the fact that it might not work, that they are about to engage in a journey that many people will not understand, that some people will actively dislike. That is the work that we are doing when we are making art because we want to connect with someone in a way they haven't been connected before. If your slogan is, you can pick anyone and I'm anyone, then you don't really get it yet. Hey, Seth, it's Mark here from Australia. Really love that last episode on beauty and the connection that you made at the end back to status roles and that you know, the culture is kind of defining what beauty is and that's changing all the time. It made me think back to a podcast episode I'd listened to of uh, two of your favorite people. Krista Tippett was interviewing Jacqueline Novogratz and Jacqueline was reflecting on this moment. I think she was at some award ceremony or something where she presented in LA and after the event, she was surrounded by a lot of people who would be, you know, by all definitions from our culture, considered very beautiful with all the kind of, you know, high heels and so on as you, as you talk about. And they were asking Jacqueline about her purpose and they were saying that they, you know, despite feeling like they have everything, that the world would tell them that they should have, they were lacking in that department. And um, we're asking Jacqueline for her advice. And Jacqueline said, I think we're actually asking the wrong questions. And instead of asking, how can I be beautiful or how can I be rich? We could reframe that question to be, how could I make someone else feel beautiful? Or how could I make someone else, not rich, but you know, empowered financially and um, effectively, how can I show up for the marginalized? And that is where purpose comes from. So I wondered if you'd uh, riff a little bit on that uh, obviously, um, in my space, leading a not-for-profit, status roles exist too, and we're trying to, in a way that's not narcissistic or centered around unhelpful ego or identity um, sort of stuff, really celebrate people who are showing up generously and creating that beauty and empowerment for other people. Um, I'd love it if you could riff a little bit on what Jacqueline was talking about there around uh, the power to reframe those status roles and what beauty looks like so that we are celebrating people who are generous and who are like conduits for resources to flow through them and maybe because of the definitions of the culture um, around beauty, they might receive a lot of privilege and resources and how can we actually say, now the, the beautiful person isn't the one with all those high heels or, you know, that particular car or it might be, but the person that allows themselves to be a conduit for those resources to flow through them to other people that need them more, more than ever. So would love to, if you could riff, riff on that a little bit. Thanks for your work, Seth. Thank you for this one, Mark. And just hearing Jacqueline's name brightens up my soul. She is brilliant and has helped an enormous number of people truly around the world live a better life. And I think part of what she is getting at is this. Dignity is not based on scarcity. And dignity is something that is very hard to claim for yourself and particularly easy to offer to someone else. And if people are worried about beauty in the sense of high heels or in the sense of, you know, ripped pectoral muscles earned at the gym or a fancy haircut, those people are looking at the world through status, through scarcity, and through a mirror. They are looking at themselves. They want to be picked. They want to be respected. But what it means to show up to offer other people dignity is to say, I see you. I have a hunch for what you need here. I'm offering this to you, not with a sense of scarcity because now I don't have it either, 
but with a sense of abundance. Because if I can offer you dignity, now we both earn dignity. And so Jacqueline, who is Stanford MBA with a long history of understanding capitalism, is saying to capitalists, there's a kind of patient capital that it's easy to forget. Not that fake Nobel Prize, Milton Friedman, selfish short-term thinking, maximize shareholder value today sort of capitalism, but the capitalism that says when we engage with other people and bring them to our table and go to their table, we are offering them a sort of dignity. And if we can do that with patience and we can do that with abundance, we discover that that might be where purpose comes from. Hi, Seth. This is Shar from Toronto. I wanted to just start by saying thank you. Thank you for everything that you do. Whenever I feel doubt, I listen to your podcast or read your content online or some of your books. The practice in particular, I feel like it changes me every time that I read it. So thank you so much for making me and, and all of us so much stronger. The question that I have for you is related to my latest venture. I started my own company teaching kids leadership skills, and I gave up my classic, you know, corporate gig to do this full time. And I am mostly always scared, hopeful most days, excited most days, but scared often. And my question for you is how do you, especially in the early days, you know, how did you stay focused on forging the path ahead? when the noise of others' judgment is so loud. And maybe this is my fear talking, but I feel like everyone's waiting for me to fail because it's just so common for a new business to fail. And I feel so vulnerable and exposed to the world. It was so much easier just having a classic job and fitting right in. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. And again, thank you so much for everything that you do. Thanks for this, Shar. I appreciate the work that you're doing. And you said something twice in your question that I think is worth highlighting, which is you talked about your old job as classic. I'm not sure that the people who are watching you are waiting for you to fail. I think you might feel that way because you'd rather not fail. But I think the people who are watching you are worried about where they are, their classic job. What is it all for? Why have they given up their agency and their dignity and their time to do this classic thing. So maybe they need to justify that by, in the short run, apparently thinking a little bit less of what you were doing. But my hunch is they're just jealous because if they were brave the way you are brave, they would be on the frontier, on the frontier teaching and connecting and leading and doing something that might not work. And I think what it comes down to is this. We can acknowledge that it might not work without demeaning ourselves or the work. In fact, it raises the quality of the work to say, I'm doing something that might not work. And if it doesn't work, you will not have failed. You will simply have found one more step forward on your way to making the difference that you seek to make. So it doesn't have to be fraught, and you don't have to feel vulnerable. You can simply say, here, I made this. I made this for you. I see you. How does this fit? And if it doesn't fit, you can tailor it and adjust it and do it again. And as long as we are able to show up, we have a chance to make things better. And so I feel sorry for the people with the classic corporate jobs, with or without air quotes, because at some level they are hiding. We are all hiding, but they're hiding even more than you are. And what we get is a chance to show up 
and connect and to make things better. So thanks to the four of you for giving me a chance to rant. And thanks to everybody for listening. We'll see you next time. There's a big problem that's changing everything about the world as we know it. Carbon and the impact of humans on the earth. We talk about it with words like climate change and global warming. But there's just two really important things that you need to know about it. First, this is an overwhelmingly big problem. So much so that it's likely that you feel as though your choices don't matter in the face of it. Second, that overwhelming feeling that I just mentioned, it's intentional. It was put there by design. The industries that make the biggest environmental impact have a vested interest in you feeling overwhelmed and powerless. They've marketed, lobbied, and schemed to create that feeling in all of us. In short, We've been lied to. But here's the good news. There's a lot you can do to make a difference. And the other good news is that there's still time. The Carbon Almanac is a book and project about these problems and what we can do to solve them. It was created and run by volunteers on the premise that it's not too late, but none of us can fix this problem on our own. We need each other. There are many ways to get involved, but simply learning more is a great start. Here are three steps you can take. First, go to thecarbonalmanac.org and sign up for the Daily Difference emails. They give you a short thought and a practical action that you can take alongside thousands of others every day. Second, get the Carbon Almanac book. It's full of facts, articles, graphs, and art. It's beautiful and fun to engage with. It's all footnoted and fact-checked. And importantly, it's made by volunteers whose only agenda is to solve these systemic issues. You can find it wherever books are sold. Finally, since you're listening to a podcast, search for the Carbon Almanac wherever you're listening. You'll find the Carbon Almanac podcast network and a few shows featuring expert insight, discussion, inspiration, and ways to take action. There's even a show just for kids. Do what appeals to you. Just do something. There's still time to make a huge difference in the future of the planet, but we can't solve this on our own. Join us.